Well, it's good to see y'all. Good morning. Are you well? Are you expectant? Looking forward to Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump on the horizon. Maybe. Well, we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes today, which is very apropos given where we are. And um, the title of the sermon is Hands of Man and Hands of God. And I just, I want to thank first uh, Pastor Courtney and Pastor, Pastor Hazel for inviting me, for um, um, inviting really, really just the Lord to be able to um, move amongst one thing as a guest, when you visit places, um, you could sense where there's a freedom to be able to minister what God gives you. And your pastors want and desire God's best for you. And even as a guest who speaks, they pray for me and invite me to speak God's um, word on my heart. And that's really great. So I want to take a, take a moment and if you haven't thanked them, let's let's thank them for leading you guys. And so just please applaud them. Yeah. Amen. Guess what? Pastoring's tough. Sheep bite. And so you have to work through a lot of stuff and they're doing a great job. So well done guys. Really keep pressing. So hands of man, hands of God, and let's talk about this. A couple things about Ecclesiastes. Um, first being, and you can see it on the screen, and hopefully you could read it, and if not, I apologize. Um, meaning, um, there, there's really two key words that we see, or phrases that we see in Ecclesiastes, and I'm just going to kind of cover this briefly. Um, and you see it in verse 1, 2, 1, 14. 2.1 and 2.11, I just pulled those up as examples. But really, if you read all of chapter 1 and 2, you'll see this over and over. Um, and it's the word, first word is meaningless. And everyone say meaningless. Okay. And so this goes over meaningless. And what is meaningless? Everything. Everything is meaningless. Toil is meaningless, which is work. Pleasure the opposite of work, is meaningless. Wisdom, guess what? Meaningless. Folly, meaningless. And the Hebrew word for meaningless that we see in Ecclesiastes is the word havel, and that's a, the phonetically in English. And go to the next slide, if you can. And this word is really interesting because it's translated into English as vanity. And, and another way to look at it is vapor or mist or breath. And so it's this, when you look at meaninglessness, you can't really capture it because if something is a vapor, how do you contain it? How do you hold it? How do you manage it? Um, you, really, you really can't. And so this, this vanity of vanities, everything is meaningless, everything is Havel, everyone say Havel. So cars are what? Vineyards are what? Happiness is what? Wisdom is what? 
dreams are what, aspirations are what, ambition is what, desires are what. Everything you could imagine is, it's a really positive book in the Bible, isn't it? It's all meaningless. Everything, life itself, according to the teacher of Ecclesiastes, is havel, vapor. And the second phrase we see is a term called under the sun. And you could go to the next slide, I believe. So we see this term havel, meaninglessness, and under the sun. And this teacher of Ecclesiastes, who most people land on Solomon for this, is very specific as to which, what this means. And it's a phrase for, for this life, your life, the life of every human. From the moment you're born out of the womb and take your first breath into the moment you take your last breath and die, that is under the sun. So Havel is first breath to last breath, even more positive. To help us get us under the sun is anything we create, anything we make, anything we construct, anything we administrate, anything we birth, anything we love, everything we hate, anything we taste, anything we spend, anything we save, anything we educate, anything we do is under the sun, isn't it? And guess what? It's all Havel. And so under the sun is bound by time and it's bound by this world. And so, so why, did, why do we start there? Why is that important to know? And I want, I want to pause there for a minute because this is really important. And by the way, this is all preamble to what the sermon is actually, but I want to begin here. Because Ecclesiastes clarifies what a lot of people in the world today feel. Right? This is the world we live in. That life under the sun, which is everything, is Havel. People feel this. They feel their life is meaningless. They feel that their life is empty. They feel that their life is hollow or without purpose. They feel that their life is vapor, that it's impossible to capture or define. And we've seen this quest for meaning in a dramatic way in our world. And we're experiencing it as humans, especially in this country, because we're in a season under the sun right now with elections, aren't we? And how many people put value in the elections right now? How many people put import into what's happening right now? I mean, who remembers the Paris climate change, whatever? Raise your hand if you remember it. You don't remember it? Okay. Well, how many people put meaning to that? But what would Ecclesiastes say about the Paris Climate Accord? Havel. Democratic Socialist. Havel. Conservatist, conservative Capitalist. Havel. Why? They're all under the sun. In the end, meaningless. This, this part of scripture teaches. Yet in the end, this little book identifies how important people make the things that they think are important. People spin things. And if we aren't careful, 
the way we spin things will create despair in ourselves and in our family. But there's a verse of hope at the end of chapter 2. And it's in 2.24. And it's going to launch us into what we're going to talk about today. But I want to open with that because we've got to understand the context that Ecclesiastes speaks from. And this is from a man, again, probably King Solomon, who wrote these, who experienced everything imaginable in success and a lot of failure, and at the end of life wrote this book and said, none of it mattered. Except 224, let's put that up. Everyone read this with me. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of a god. Hmm. There's hope. Something is from God under the sun. And that hope is about a table. Anyone know what else happens at a table? Enjoyment. Family. Fellowship. Coming together. What do we practice at church at the table? Communion. Under the sun is Havel, yet at the table is enjoyment. What's at the table? Christ. Communion. Family, friends, fellowship, togetherness. In other words, relationship brings joy. Solving the world's issues? Havel. Building up the bank account? Havel. And so let's un unpack this a bit, because that's not a profound statement. We all kind of know that, right? I mean, we could watch a lot of movies and get that truth. But it is profound, because, but because it's talking about vanity and vanity and vanity, and we don't want to live in vanity, because we do want to follow scripture. And then we look at this thing called the hand of God. And what does that mean for us? So we're going to go, turn to the next slide, which is looking at the hands of man and the hands of God. How do our hands relate to the hands of God? And so our core scripture today, we're finally getting to, is chapter 4, and we're going to look at chapter uh, verses 1 through 6. And so let's put those up next. And it's a bit small, but at least write them down. If you can, read along with me out loud. If not... Um, just read along as you can. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Hands of God, 
2.24, here it talks about the hands of men. And so I want, I want to think about this a little bit. So let's think about the power of an impression, because that's where it begins when we read, power and oppression. The teacher observes pain and sorrow and oppressors, that there's no comfort, that it's better not to be born, that basically to live is to suffer. Doesn't sometime life feel that way? Just to get out of bed feels like a point of suffering. To wake up another day. <sighs> Here we go. Right? We're all there sometimes. Not every day. It's hard sometimes, isn't it? Anyone ever had major surgery? You know that pain you wake up with day after day after day? One of the reasons we have an opioid addiction in our country? Because people just want to get away from the pain? And we're veering towards, again, I go back to an election because I always try to make my, what I speak about and ask God, how does this pertain to where we are today? But we're moving towards an election next year. And it's a very passionate election. I live in a part of Virginia that's very conservative. And by the way, I, grew, I lived in California here for years. I was born here in LA. Um, and so it's passionate for both the donkeys and the elephants, right? Both the Democrats and the, and the Republicans are both passionate. It's not like any one above another. And the challenge is, and this is a challenge for us as Christians, because we all think, every human on, or every American who's gonna vote thinks this. If we win, whoever we is, doesn't really matter, then life is going to be good, right? But we believe the opposite, don't we? If we don't, we're in trouble. If our side doesn't make it, if we lose somehow, then life will be meaningless, havel, miserable terrible. So, so what we kind of come at it with, and we see it on news programs, we see it on everything we, we look at. If you're on Facebook, you see it on all the feeds you would get. We see it that our problems are caused by that person, whoever they are. Everyone say they. And if we could beat they or them, life gets better. But if they beat us, and life doesn't get better, right? And again, I'm not judging either side. I'm saying that's where we are. And, and it's really sad because I think it'd be a really good idea for our entire country to read this book of the Bible together. Isn't it? Especially the part that says vanity, of vanities, of L. Now let's look at verse four, four, um, Four, four. Did I give you that alone? Okay, yeah. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So scripture says that striving, toil, work, comes from envy. 
Now that has to hurt us a little bit, doesn't it? Who enjoys their job here? Does anyone like their job? <laughs> Pastor Courtney. Who are you envious of? <laughs> Just kidding. Right? So, so literally, the toil that we're in flows from envy. What a powerful statement. And it's evil. Envy isn't a good trait, is it? It hits at the core of our ambitions and our drives and our, our desires. Whether, whether we want to be a musician or an artist, we have, we have a desire to succeed and be the best musician, the best guitarist, the best singer. Well, that comes from envy. We want the awards, we want the accolades. We go to a job, we want the most raise, right? We want the most important position. We want to be significant. Envy. And it, hits, it just hits us in the core if we really let it, let me, let me challenge all of us. It's really, really good to read the Bible. But you know what's better? Let the Bible read you. And so this is going to hit us on our core right now because it doesn't matter if you're an elitist or if you're a deplorable. This verse applies to you. Doesn't. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you're white or black or Hispanic. Doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. Doesn't matter if you're male or you're female or whatever. Whoever the them is to you, they're the one you, you're envious of. And where does envy come from? Yeah, the enemy, evil, the devil. But, keep reading Ecclesiastes, envy is meaningless, right? It's all vapor. And to try to manage our, our envy is of hell. And so, let's talk about hands and keep going with hands. So the next slide. So the wisdom and the folly of hands. Following this harsh statement about envy and, and the ouch that it talks about of our work and our toil and the striving that we live by because we all strive. And by the way, this isn't just about work, right? Because if you're a parent, you know how to strive when you have kids, don't we? We strive to make our kids right. We strive to do the right things by our spouse. We strive to do the right things as a son or daughter to our parents. So, so ambition, striving comes everywhere. And so following this statement about envy comes this statement about hands. And again, remember hands that we talked about, the hands of God. What do hands have to do with envy and pain and with oppression and vanity? And why would God place it right here? And we're gonna, we're gonna look at the verse and let's, let's go ahead and put it up, Ecclesiastes 5 and 6, 4, 5 and 6. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful 
with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. So we're going to really talk about hands for a second, because there's limitations in English, especially when we look at scripture. And, and when we look at the nuance and the richness of the biblical language, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, English doesn't capture everything the biblical languages talk about. It just doesn't. And it doesn't mean that everyone should go out and study um, Hebrew. It's just be aware of it, and you could always research it, especially online. There's so many tools you could get. And I don't know much about Tagalog, but in Tagalog, how many words for hand are there? Three, okay. Well, in English, I believe there's one, right? Hand, though Dr. Seuss may create more, but just one in English. But in Hebrew, there's three different words. Everyone say three. There's three different words for hand. Now, that of course makes me wonder, why would the Holy Spirit put three different words for hand in Hebrew? And then we, as we translate it, use one word. So we're, we're probably missing something, right? So let's try to go back to Hebrew and kind of look what it means. So why don't, um, why don't we look at the meanings in Hebrew and look at it, what it is. And so in doing that, and we're going to look at it more, but I want to summarize what the, two, what the meanings are. And there's three again. The first one is two handfuls grabbing. So everyone take both your hands and grab something. Okay. What are you grabbing? And what are you making when you grab? A fist. Good. That's the first meaning. And don't hit anyone with your fist. Number two, two hands folded. Good. Very good. We'll talk about that. And then one hand in tranquility. What do you think that looks like? Make a bowl. There you go. Okay, so those are the three general meetings in hands. And so let's look at the first hands, two hands grabbing. And I think there's a slide, yeah. Two fist hands. So the original word in Hebrew is kofen. Everyone say kofen. So you're learning Hebrew today. And kofen means what? Fist, cupped hands, making a fist, getting the most you can into your hands because you make a fist when you grab it and pull it to you. So when we grab stuff and pull it to us, it's kofen. Okay. And and so when we grab, what else is kofen? Hoarding. Anyone watch that show Hoarders? They're kofen hands, right? They're getting more and more and more. They want more. We need more. Do you ever have enough if you have kofen hands? No. Right? Because you're constantly looking for more. So it's not just about the rich and famous, right? Because this follows the statement of envy. So let's go back to where it is in scripture. Toil comes from envy. So those who toil, work, they're envious, they're jealous, and they're grabbing, and they're grabbing, and they're grabbing. So you could be rich, and you could be poor, you could be on the street or you could be in a mansion. It doesn't matter where you are. This isn't about your economics. This is about your heart. Kofen. So 
we all envy, and we all compare ourselves to other people, don't we? Reality, we do. Because we all want what the other person has. And we know how to, we know Kofin, we know it if we're in high school. We know it if we're in high school and that person gets an A and we don't. We know if we're in high school and that person has this car and we don't have any car and we're taking the bus to class. Right? We know it because of the t clothes people wear or the shoes that people have on. Kofin. We may not even have nice shoes, but it doesn't mean we're not living in Kofin because we want them and we're willing to grab them. Right? And so a heart of Kofin will always precede a behavior of taking what you want, of becoming eventually a grabber, a hoarder, even a thief. It starts here, right? Okay. Second set of hands. Are two hands folded? And the um, the word in Hebrew is yod. Everyone say yod. And you can keep going. You can put them all up on this slide. So the short definition is it's a primitive word for an open hand coming together, two hands coming together. So think power and direction, energy where your will goes. What do you do with the life you're given? When we see hands like this, what do you think of? Maybe meditation? prayer, maybe Eastern philosophy, and I'm not bashing it, but that's kind of what comes to my mind. This inner sense, Tai, tai Chi, it could come from this. Um, when you meet Indians, um, and I mean cultural Indians, they'll, they'll put their hands together, right? So it's coming together, bringing hands together. And so that word in Hebrew is about this taking your energy and bringing it into itself. Does that make sense? Okay. And so the, the reference to Yod is made to uh, Proverbs 6, 9 through 11. And so I'm going to read that. It's up there. How long will you lie there, O sluggard, when you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, yod, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And so there's this reference not to how people are from different faith backgrounds or different religions, but in Hebrew, those who fold their hands, who, who seek an inner sense of Zen, I'm using different language than the Hebrews would use, but they're saying that there's a sluggardness to this. There's this internal focus that people take. God gave me power. What does God tell us to do with the power he gave us? To bless other people, right? To clothe them, to feed them, to help them. So, so in Hebrew, this is speaking to those hands aren't doing anything to help anyone else. They're just closed, finding their own peace. So there's no desire to alleviate suffering. There's no desire to take care of other people. 
you see someone on the side of the road who's broken, like the Good Samaritan story, the yod hands walk by. People are in need. So what? I'm at peace with myself. That's what it's a reference to. And then there's the third hand, which I didn't do a slide on, but it's the hand between the destructive fists and the checkout folded tranquility kind of, you know, peaceful hands. And that word is cough. Everyone say cough. And it means hand open like a pan or a bowl. Everyone do this. And what's, what does a pan or bowl do? It holds something. It receives something, right? You could pour something into it. You could, it could receive liquid. It could receive food. And so cough is also used to talk about kitchen utensils in Hebrew. But it's also a reference to hands that are cupped. And so there's, there, there's no screen because this is about our hands now. Because what Ecclesiastes is teaching us is to live at the table. We have to live like this, right? To live at the hand of God, we have to live with our hands as a bowl. A fist, what's the problem with being a fist? Grabbing. If someone wants to give you, if Pastor Courtney wants to give me something, how is he going to give it to me? I can't receive it, can I? Right? And if I'm doing this, and again, Pastor Courtney wants to give me something, how do I receive it? I can't. And so tranquility or peace the scripture speaks of comes from this hand, from being open, from being a bowl. Hands together, you're focused on yourself. You're lost in your own whatever, inner dialogue. A fist is greed. I want more and more and more. But an open hand is open to receive. Now, what's the problem with an open hand? You could steal really easy, can't you? That's the risk of living open-handedly. And again, go back to where we begin. Envy, striving, work. Envy's evil. Living by comparison. By looking at life through, why don't I have what you have? How come you have so much and I have so little? Where that comes from is a, is a point of evil. Because this, this passage is completely practical. Because living with one-handed cough is like a pan or bowl ready to receive whatever God gives you, especially when you go to his table. Because this is the hand of God towards you. It's better than two hand fists angry and hoarding, and even two together in vanity is Havel, because there's no peace in Havel. We've covered that. Under the sun, there is no peace. If 
finding your inner peace, you won't find it. Only receiving from God, only at the table, do we find joy, do we find happiness. And so I want to share one quote, and this is from C.S. Lewis, who's one of my favorite writers. Yet even if they desire equality, they cannot reach it. Where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars. Instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served, deny it food, and it will gobble poison. And Lewis is talking about two-handed hoarding. In other words, envy. We grab onto what we want. Fists. We live that way. More and more. Whether it's money, whether it's fame, whether it's success, we surround ourselves with the right people. They're going to all affirm us. The right connections will never be challenged. And by the way, how many people in our country can't separate who they are from what they do? Hi, I'm Joe. What's your first question of me when you meet me? What do you do? What's it matter? Doesn't it really matter who I am? What's more significant to you? I mean, right now, think about this for a minute. What's more significant to a person you meet that you've never met before? That they're Christian or that they are a manager of a whatever? What's that? Christian. And, but we don't, we don't want that just because it's a church answer. We want it because we know Christians by their fruit. We know Christians because they live like this, because we could trust them. They're not going to hurt us, right? They're, they're not going to judge who we are. They may help correct us and bring conviction to our lives. cup. Teacher says some fold, some cho chase, better one hand tranquility to receive what's there. We don't live in envy, we live in shalom. And so what does this look like? Let's look at John 14, 25 through 27. Because guess what? Jesus lived this way. So the gift of peace is peace. These things I have spoken to you while present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace. Everyone say peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world does do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Literally, the Lord has planned for us and given to us peace. And he draws on this ancient peace that went back to Ecclesiastes and, by the way, back to the foundations of the earth. It's open-handed cough. Receiving what is given, not holding it, not hoarding it, not worrying if someone takes it, not trying to find some false peace or false sense of calm, but trusting God fully. We sang it, I surrender what? All. 
trusting God. That's where peace comes from. Jesus wants to save us in the biggest sense of the word. Not just because, hey, let's go to heaven. Though that's certainly an awesome thing, isn't it? But he wants to save us from the craziness of life. He wants to save us from worrying about who wins the next election. He wants to save us from worrying about what North Korea will do or China or whoever. He wants to save us from worrying about whether there's a wall or not a wall, right? He wants to save us from everything because we live this way. Amen. And it's hard to live this way because we have friends and we have people we love and they all have ideas. But, but know this, you're Christians. And that means you're going to be countercultural to the world you live in. In other words, everyone you connect with is going to look at you like you're nuts. They're supposed to. You're not supposed to fit. You're not supposed to be affirmed by everyone out there. They're supposed to look at you and go, man, they're whacked. The things they believe in. But you know what? They live in a way that I wish I had what they got. I wish I had that. And then you're ready when they ask, what is it you have? But it's changed everything in you. It's given you peace. You're not holding it. You're not hoarding it. You don't worry when the, excuse me, but when the tithe comes by. You're not challenged because someone asks you for a check on the street or money on the street. You just ask God. And guess what? Sometimes the answer is no. That's fine. Let your no be a no. But what happens when your yes is a yes? Give generously and, and joyously because God said to. You're giving to God. Amen? But again, it doesn't mean you give to everyone you meet. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And so we live this way. And we know we're going to bump into things. And people are going to look at us and go, wait a minute, that doesn't fit. Wait a minute, you're, you're this, and how come you don't fit in this political group? Because I'm Christian. And what God will do is he'll keep challenging you, and what you'll find is you'll keep looking in the mirror because you're going to let the Bible read you, and it will, because it's a living word. And you'll see that you have a lot of small g gods in your life that you didn't know you were worshiping, right, for all of your life. This doesn't go away. I wish, I, I wish nobody said amen, but everyone is going to say amen because that's what happens, right? We have all these dark places in us we don't even know we have. It's like an onion. We keep peeling it, and there's more layers and more layers and more layers. It's called sanctification theologically, and we just keep getting changed. But we can't live with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven and just keep walking that way. We can't. You know why? Light and dark don't mix. Because where there's light, what happens to the dark? 
it flees. So if you're comfortable in any area of your life where there's darkness and you know where those are, that's where you got to look at yourself and go, I'm not doing this. I'm doing something else. I'm living a different way. God, show me. And guess what he's really good at doing? Showing you. He will. And it's not easy, but it's really healthy. And you'll find yourself growing and growing and growing. Because light and dark don't coexist no matter what the bumper sticker says. So we live in this world where we normalize so much. Self-abuse is normalized. Self-mutilation is normalized. Self-feeling about truth is, is normalized. I feel that I'm this. And by the way, you hate if you don't affirm what I feel. Okay. That's not the love of the truth. And if you guys are in school and you're younger, I apologize. It's a really hard time to be in school, especially if you're a Christian, because it's hard to stand up for what's true. But I just want to affirm you and say, you're not hating anyone if you stand by the word. You're just not, no matter what people say to you. It's okay to love truth and trust God. No matter what the world says, two-fisted grabbing doesn't work. The idea that you could find two-handed peace doesn't work. Zenness, oneness with whatever doesn't work. It's grasping vapor, it's meaningless, it's under the sun. So we have to conquer our desire for darkness by bringing light to it. That's the only way to get there. And so we who love Jesus, we have to look at the, the habits that we have and the rituals we have and the things we do with our life and the addictions that carry forward. And we have to know that they're destructive and be willing to look at them and be willing to face them and understand that most of them come from envy and then recognize that it's meaningless and then go to the table like this and let the Lord do his work in us. And it doesn't matter what side we're on, what partisan issue we're facing. Identity politics don't matter. The world of us and them, there's never a them that really matters except for Jesus. And that's a him, not a them. Even if culture around us say it's all good, it's all normal, it isn't. And so what Jesus does, and, and this, I'm getting near the end, I promise. John, um, next slide. And this is really remarkable, and I want you to really think about this, given the context of what we're talking about. Go ahead and put up the scripture. This is where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven said, saying, and everyone read this with me, 
This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What was Jesus' ministry at this point? Everyone say nothing. How many people had Jesus healed at this point? None. How many women at the well did he minister to? Zero. How many prostitutes and tax collectors had he shown the light to? None. In other words, Jesus had done nothing. And God said, I'm well pleased with you. Abba, Father, said, I am well pleased. Yeah. It's a total and complete blessing from his Father before Jesus does a thing. This is Ecclesiastes. Even ministry, vapor, apart from the Father. He receives God's blessing because God loves him. God affirms Jesus and basically, I mean, basically said, this is my boy and I love him. So God doesn't love Jesus because Jesus is Jesus. Well, maybe because he is Jesus, but not because Jesus does Jesus. It's before the cross. And Jesus doesn't go get baptized by John with the hope of receiving God's blessing. Right? He didn't go to some prosperity gospel message and say, well, if I get baptized, maybe there'll be some really big checks coming in for me because God will bless me. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is living what? Make your hand. Cough. Open-handed. He hears the will of the Father, he does it. He does what God tells him to do. There's no envy in Jesus. There's no desire for him to do anything apart from what his Father tells him. In other words, Jesus is one with his Father at the table. He's in pure relationship with him. So are you. Let me repeat that. So are you. There's nothing you have to do. You've been saved because Jesus loves you. He died for you before you did a thing. He didn't save you to do anything for him. He saved you because he loves you. That's the difference between justification and sanctification. Again, theological terms. You're saved because of his love. Jesus so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You're at the table with him now. You don't have to prove anything to God. So if we live like this, he will do something in us. And he will call us to do things for him. Because after this, Jesus did go to the cross. But Jesus led and lived with tranquility 
with peace, even unto death. How many fold, how many grasp, how many hoard through their life? How many race after all sorts of things, trying to do more and more? How many try to achieve more and more? How many people check out of life? Hey, I saved up enough, I'm gonna retire. Bye-bye, I'm done. We got that beach hut. Or I bought that camper, I'm gonna drive across country for the rest of my life. In other words, close your eyes to the world and just find your place. In Jesus, you see a calm stillness and a peace. Cough. Jesus says in John 5, 19 and 20, truly, truly, last slide, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus said, God gave me these things to do. I'm going to do them. Heal this person? Yes. Talk to this person? Yes. But did he heal everyone who needed healing? No. How do we know that? Because look at the book of Acts. There was more healing. How did that happen if Jesus healed everybody? Basically, Jesus is saying, I wasn't charged with that task. God didn't tell me to. My dad didn't tell me to. He didn't tell me to do that or that. He didn't say, go fix that failure. He didn't say, get in that dysfunctional relationship. But he said, I, I have these few things for you to do. Do them. And he did them. Any guilt in him? No. Any envy in him? No. Any striving? No. Any stress? No. He already received God's blessing before he did anything. So he did it at the table out of joy. And so if you get one thing today, please get this and turn to whoever's next to you and say, you've been blessed already. Doesn't matter what you do tomorrow. Doesn't matter what you do later. Doesn't matter what you walk out the door and do. Let me, let me be bold. I don't care if you sin. Unfortunately, I know you will because you're a sinner like me and so will I. But I have Christ in me and I'm forgiven. And I don't mean that flippantly because it's no desire to sin. Like Paul, I long for the day I don't have this body. I long for a day I'm not in this, this world or I'm just with him. But for now, I'm not, and I'm here, and I have a job, and we're blessed right now. Amen? And we live like this. Hallelujah.